Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your channel host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nicoletta Battini about the new book, The Economics of Sustainable Food, Smart Policies for Health and the Planet. Dr. Battini, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Chris. Thank you. So, Nicoletta, if you will, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So... I'm um, originally from Italy, and I am currently the lead evaluator of the International Monetary Fund, working in the independent evaluation office of the uh, IMF. Um, I came to the U.S. about um, a good 17 years ago, and this was not my first job. So my, my very first job was at the Bank of England. Was I was advisor to the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, and then uh, I was basically my background is uh, monetary economics, a lot of inflation, a lot of interest rates. Um, after a few years there, which was fantastic, I decided to look out and uh, the, uh, you know, the career brought me to the research department of the IMF, where I covered a number of areas and including um, you know, deficits and uh, demographic change, globalization. Um, as part of that, um, you know, I started looking, uh, more into issues, of course, related to fiscal policy and the IMF is very, very focused on fiscal policy. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of rounded myself up, uh, from monetary into fiscal and I started working on, on countries. I even moved to Peru for the IMF where I was resident representative for two years in Lima. It was a wonderful opportunity to know that region and, uh, you know, firsthand to, to actually see a lot of the uh, commodity production that happens in the world, you know, from gold mining uh, to uh, gas uh, production to extraction to things like, uh, of course, agriculture and, uh, you know, dairy production and so forth fisheries peru is you know in the 70s was the the largest uh exporter of fish in the to the world um and after that i came back to the united states to our headquarter in 2008 when you know the global financial crisis was now uh brooming um and uh, there were visible signs of that already and i worked on on chile and then I actually worked on the United States and Canada uh, during the crisis and, and then moved to, to European countries, the Nordics, uh, Israel. And so I did a lot, of, uh, a lot of going around the IMF, which is a you know, big institution. Um, and, uh, and then I went to, to Rome. I worked as a, for a couple of years. I took uh, leave and I was director of... Uh, the Office of International Economics and Policy of the Treasury. And then I returned back um, and, and uh, had, uh, you know, other countries, including France. Um, and at that point, I started really, um, I was looking already for the U.S. I wrote a paper back in the two, 2011, 2010 on, on the fiscal aspects of the U.S., particularly the fiscal gap, which is, you know, how much, IOU the U.S. has written to um, uh, because of it, the fact that expenditure exceeds uh, revenues, including from you know the future commitments, and a lot of that has to do with you know medical care, medical uh, mandatory spending, and as the more I looked at the issue of fiscal spending and where a lot of that originates, the more I got closer. Uh, to the fact that a lot of that originates, of course, in, in health uh, issues and healthcare spending. And, and then 
um, over the years, I figured out that a lot of that, reading you know reports by the World Health Organization and many other uh, studies, that that basically relates to diets. Um, and then when all this, you know, the the the, room, the noise and and the, the concerns about climate change came about, I I just started you know connecting dots with um, the, the dietary situation and the impact on fiscal accounts of so many countries and. The fact that maybe it was also the uh, um, the fact that agriculture itself uh, was uh, being crafted by policy in a way that was disconnected from food policy, and that led to you know uh, distortions in prices that actually nudged consumers to consume possibly more uh, uh, of the stuff that they shouldn't consume and in, in greater quantities in some countries or you know, vice versa in other countries to consume too little of the good things uh, because, um, you know, marketing and the industry convince them, even in those lower income countries, even those emerging market countries, that it's good to eat stuff that is actually uh, not healthy. And, and so, um, you know, I started digging and digging and digging and uh, I went down the rabbit hole and I thought this is a really... Uh, sexy topic for an economist because people haven't thought about this before. It has a really huge macroeconomic impact uh, in a variety of areas of the macroeconomy, you know, from production to productivity, to jobs, to fiscal accounts. And I decided to embark into, um, you know, a publication that could cover all these aspects. Of course, I couldn't possibly conceive doing it alone, so I decided to do an edited contribution, and I went out and uh, recruiting, you know, what I think were are the best uh, experts, the best practitioners out there, and and uh, and that's how the idea of this this book, Chris, came about: the the economics of sustainable food, uh, which just came out in June eight, uh, published by Island Press and the International Monetary Fund. And I'd like you to, you know, to, to run you th through some of the, some of the sections, because I think it's, uh, you know, it, it really fills a gap in the literature. And uh, it's, I, I see it very much as a manual, like a handbook that takes people of all, you know, from all um, areas of, of policy, but also, you know, academia through uh, what are the both environmental, but economic challenges posed by current food systems and, and especially focus then on how to fix those through public policy, which is, uh, um, you know, an under, um, under discussed topic today. Um, we talk a lot about the dangers of food systems, you know, the, the damages they do, but there's little about, okay, so what policies do we need and how do we um, decline them at the country level? to make sure that they're effective uh, in different countries in different ways to achieve the same sustainability and health objectives. I, I agree. I agree completely. And you do, it is an edited volume. So that's, that's one thing that we should definitely note. Uh, you bring a lot of expertise yourself, expert knowledge to the table. But as you just described, you have a vast and and, de and deep experiential as on the ground and in the field knowledge uh, that shows up uh, as well as your counterparts in this edited volume. And you mentioned kind of the connections that you saw uh, started to see bubble up throughout your career. And the book does just dive into how everything is interconnected. And so it is this very complex, but and in the front end, you it is a manual, and you talk about who who should who should read this, who is this for, who can kind of start engaging this content, uh, and I think that y'all lay that out really well. And you you put the book sections. So let me talk about the book sections for a moment. You've got kind of four sections you lay out: the the production side of things, the consumption side of the system, uh, food waste, which is. Uh, continually a big topic uh, and sustainable land use. So those are the four major sections. But when we start the we start the book, you you kind of identify right off the bat that this conversation is stemming from the industrialized uh, agriculture and fishing, and how that has distorted food system over time, both for people and economies. And you recognize 
essentially five negative externalities. Could you talk a little bit about the negative externalities uh, in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so um, the food system um, is, uh, of course, one of the two, you know, big contributors to climate change. Um, and this is often, you know, not well understood or not not by the by the general public. You know, people think that climate change is basically a consequence of us burning fossil fuels. And that's you know, very true that, that burning fossil fuels contributed tremendously to climate change. But, but food systems also contribute to climate change in, in many different ways, uh, also because they are fossil fuel based these days, but, but mostly for, for reasons which are unrelated to fossil fuels. And, and so um, when I um, uh, looked at this issue, um, you know, I immediately recognized um, that the problem is, is a bit more complex than a trend organizing or uh, thinking, studying a transition in the energy sector, because in the energy sector, um, energies, um, uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change calls energy a sector, but in economic terms, you know, energy is not a sector. What's a sector or you know, electricity or power sector, then you have transportation, then you have industry, then you have agriculture, fisheries, and, and uh, land use, and so forth. But for for the for the purpose of aggregating greenhouse gas emissions, they call you know all the sectors that that use electricity uh, energy sector, um, and the energy sector transition requires basically to uh, make um, power generation um, uh, sustainable. Right. So so then you can basically go at a lot of the sources and just um, make sure that when you produce that power, uh, you make it in a sustainable way. So and we do have solutions for that. We have renewables and of course we have nuclear. Um, large hydro is, you know, was an option. Now it's mostly exploited. Um, so we have you know, these two big, big sources. People are thinking about hydrogen, but hydrogen itself has to be. Uh, crafted uh, through energy use, and therefore people are talking about nuclear, hydrogen, and so forth. For food systems, is is more complex, and you have a number of endpoints that you need to work at once. And so, uh, one is supply, and the other is demand. Uh, but there's a third area which is um, food waste, because uh, what we don't eat is as important as what we eat, because we throw away all, a lot of it. So. Um, they say that, uh, according to some estimate, that if food system uh, was a country, it'd be the third largest emitting country in the world. And food waste happens for different reasons in different countries, you know, and we can go a little bit more in detail into that. So solutions different depending on the income tier of a country and, you know, how production and consumption are structured. But the fourth area, which is really important in uh, redressing food system is, uh, is a conservation because nature and the uh, natural ecosystems are not just a, a kind of quintessential input in our food production, but they are also, um, you know, um, key for uh, carbon sequestration. And why is that related to food system? Well, because uh, basically uh, half of the existing land on earth is used by agriculture and there is a trade-off between using land for agriculture and using it for conservation. And since we know that part of the climate agreements that we have pledged to and the path that we need to embark on to save the planet and ourselves is that we need to mark off a third of the planet for conservation, if we are not doing agriculture well and you know effectively using the land in a smart way we're basically eating into that 30 percent um and we are compromising our ability to uh, to you know protect this ecosystem which have a climate uh role because they are carbon sinks so you know the the way we use land and seas is very important for climate or earth's earth system stability 
and that goes through uh, ag and fisheries uh, because these are the, the the, the culprit, the number one cause of uh, the degradation of uh, natural ecosystems, the number one cause of um, biodiversity loss. And so you've got, you've laid out kind of the big points of the book and you, you lay out these externalities to kind of really talk about, these are all the ways that the, the current system, which you recognize and your counterparts recognize in, in latter chapters that I mean, there's reason for the industrialization. There was reason for the the, the quote unquote green revolution, um, and now we have to think about okay, it did its job, and now we have to think about all the things that came with that, all the all the consequences that resulted from that that we're we're dealing with, um, and that you you even know like still dealing would have dealt with, still dealing with um, in one point in the book, and so the fix is right. The 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 thesis of this is the great food transformation. And you say there's three steps toward that. Now, one for policymakers to understand public health, economic and environmental trade-offs between the the food system and other uses for land. Um, Two, society needs very clear frameworks to guide the shifts at both country and regional levels. And then third is the the economic policies and and, and kind of structural reforms to, to make the transformation happen. And you wrote, I mean, quote, uh, the design of economic policies to make a food transformation ha- happen is much sketchier. And and so that's what I want to focus on for a little bit is is these policies. Like you note that one in, steps one and two, we have a pretty good grasp of. Uh, and then we're moving into the policies. And that's where it gets a little trickier because there's not a whole lot of evidence. There hasn't been a whole lot of uh, – there are some cases that you point to in the book that are successes or even – moving towards successes, but let's talk a little about the, the design of these economic policies. What's available? So, um, so as I said um, at the beginning, the, uh, there is a disconnect between, uh, you know, food policy and agricultural policy. Agricultural policy, as you, as you pointed out, um, we're born really in some countries, in most countries, after the Second World War, in some countries like the U.S., maybe in the, in the 30s and 40s, uh, when you know uh, countries uh, really suffered uh, to great extent uh, production problems and and even hunger, you know, in large swaths of the population because of either you know uh, financial crises or um, the way the land had been treated. And, and the way became uh, very quickly unproductive. Um, so um, th- those policies have been basically devised to only maximize y- yields. Uh, m- maximizing yields uh, led to a series of uh, policy actions uh, that um, you know were for mechanization, for industrialization, uh, and for a greater and greater use of force in the in the, against nature, we could say, you know, in in fostering almost artificially abnormally amounts of output, uh, with with little regard for the quality of the output, and with little regard for uh, you know the people that were working in those sectors. Uh, you know, people were just kicked out because a machine were replaced. That was fine. You know, that was part of the progress that we had to go through. Uh, and if uh, nature had to be, um, for lack of better words, raped through the use of, you know, chemicals and uh, all sorts of uh, heavy machinery, that was fine because, you know, these policies now were serving a higher purpose, the purpose of feeding, you know, those that didn't have food on the table. Uh, while this statement maybe was true at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of what they call the Green Revolution, which was this transformation towards, in, you know, heavy industrialization of the sector, um, you know, clearly it isn't, it isn't correct now because if you look at, um, you know, where we stand on, on nutrition, uh, we have a situation where we overproduce in some countries and underproducing other countries with all through same methods um, because of those farming practices and those fishing activities. And uh, uh, billions of people in the world, uh, you know, are malnourished. They're either overnourished or 
undernourished. Um, and so the system, the highly high tech, uh, you know, industrialized and um, in, innovative um, uh, configuration that we worked out um, the way to farm uh, in modern times uh, it is actually completely inept to feed us. You know, it leaves a lot of us out. And even those that uh, have access to food and can, can kind of regulate themselves in eating the right quantity, it's very hard to find the right quality. And that usually comes at a, a very high price, at so a premium to what one should pay for, for healthy food. And so it's, you know, it's inaccessible for large chunks of the population, creating what I call, you know, health inequalities and food inequalities of immense, immense proportions. So, um, you know, the policy is the, is a culprit here that really caused the system. And so the solutions lie in changes to the economic policies and structural reforms. And there is very little about it because, uh, First of all, uh, as I say in the book, and you know, in the first chapter, macroeconomists have washed their hands of this problem. Macroeconomists think that agriculture and fisheries are almost not worth looking at because the value added of these sectors is very small. Value added being, you know, uh, the uh, what is produced minus what are inputs that go into it. So it's like the additional value that the sector. Uh, produces and that's you know that's a consequence of, of the way the system is structured because the inputs are expensive and a lot of inputs chemical inputs fossil fuel inputs land has become extremely expensive uh, and therefore you know when you subtract all that um, you know the value added looks small but but you know that shouldn't detract us from knowing and acknowledging that you know food is what keeps us alive I mean we all eat three times a day Food is our energy, um, and and uh, more importantly, you know, food is production is the largest employer in the world because while it employs a you know only five percent of the labor force in advanced economies, it still employs an enormous amount of people in non-advanced economies, and so if we were to move to those economies towards the advanced economies way of farming, you know, those uh, billion jobs would be lost and we would have a massive uh, unemployment situation and, and great uncertainty uh, and so forth. So uh, the policies are, um, you know, essential. They, they, they do vary depending on countries, um, but there hasn't been enough, I think, thinking um, of how to shape them organically across these four areas that we talked about, which is you know working simultaneously on supply, on demand, on food waste, and conservation. And and what we do here in the book with the with the co-authors and authors is to really uh, you know uh, taxonomize and, and identify a number of policies that are going to work well um, in in a lot of countries. And then we also give country case examples of successful successful policies in, in some of this in some of these areas so people can you know get a sense what um, the benefits the economic benefits uh, and of course health and environmental benefits of doing things right um, so uh, if if I were to explore the you know the policy angle a little bit more I mean a lot of this policy are fiscal policies so they have to do you know with the usual taxes and subsidies, tax exemptions. Um, but a lot of policies have to do with regulation, which is also in the economic policy domain. And, and some policies have to do with structural reforms. Uh, so changing the way you know markets work, uh, which is, uh, of course, um, a domain of public policy. And then there are uh, you know, some, uh, um, some ancillary policies that, that, that can be used uh, to guide the transformation, which, uh, you know, relate to um, investment. So governments have to, to make the great transformation in food systems happen, they have to invest in research and development, for example, in nutrition, because, you know, um, 
that's it's it's one of the most important areas that we still need to uh, and disentangle and to to be effective at changing nutrition policies. They have to invest in, um, for example, just to throw some examples, you know, in uh, weather systems, uh, in you know, big data to lower insurance costs for uh, uh, farmers, and there's there's a huge role for public investment. These are actually small investment in magnitude, but they can make a tremendous difference and they can provide tremendously valuable public goods for the transition in food systems. Yeah, I agree to a lot of your points and and you've noted and you, you make a very clear distinction that between kind of current state of things and as well as kind of these policy mechanisms needed to drive this great food transformation between advanced economies and, and what y'all call less advanced economies. And and even with that distinction and knowing there's things that can happen in, in one type of economy versus another, uh, you also note, and, and hopefully our listeners are, are well aware, that's a little bit more complex. Even you mentioned subsidies as one, one mechanism, even subsidizing kind of industrial practices in advanced economies uh, and, and that commodity pricing program impacts the less advanced economies, even if the less advanced economies don't want it to, uh, it's it's more complicated than just there's mechanisms in each of these types of scenarios, but they cross over. So subsidies in one place can make food prices cheaper in another place that that changes what would happen in country. Can you talk a little bit more about that that complexity? Yes, absolutely. So this is, I mean, a well-known fact that, you know, when the, if, if uh, an advanced economy subsidizes its industrial agriculture, um, that usually, as it's been happening in the past since, you know, the 50s and 60s, it, it can lead and it does lead to overproduction. And the overproduction is um, basically reversed uh, or poured onto global markets, which means that smaller producers or medium producers in uh, unsubsidized countries that are, you know, less uh, prosperous are competed out. They're competed out of their own uh, production. So say, you know, cheap rice arrives from a country that subsidizes heavily its rice production. And, uh, you know, the, the farmer producing rice in that country uh, f- still faces higher cost of production because first it's not subsidized and second it's not as industrialized and therefore, you know, loses his job or her job. And, uh, and, and there is an influx, you know, of this uh, oversupply that comes from a, a large uh, subsidized advanced economy uh, production system. And that, um, it, since in a lot of countries, agriculture is, is, as we discussed, it's a huge employer that basically creates, um, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, discomfort, economic discomfort and stress in a lot of countries. It also uh, makes so that uh, food prices uh, become basically... Um, um, a vagary of, of, you know, commodity markets more generally, um, because, for example, uh, food prices depend heavily on the price of fertilizers, which in turn, under industrial agriculture, of course, which uses fertilizers, chemical fertilizers. And those fertilizers, um, you know, are heavily linked to the price of oil because, you know, they are synthetic and uh, fossil fuels enter the equation, and therefore food prices get linked to oil prices. So now, these countries that got you know the bad end of the stick and they lost their ability to produce in a competitive fashion uh, food and now imported because of the laws of the market uh, are at the you know at the mercy of international food prices and uh, commodities markets oscillations. We saw that very clearly in 2007 and 8 when, you know, all prices skyrocketed and they brought with them food prices. And that pushed just by that happening of the few quarters, 
you know, something in the order of 40 to 50 million people into straight poverty and hunger. So, you know, there, there are immense and immediate spillovers uh, of uh, policies, agricultural policies in, you know, richer countries onto uh, lower income countries. Um, they really prejudicate the abilities of these countries to develop. And this is not just subsidies, it's also regulation. Uh, for example, you cannot uh, import in the European Union, according to a regulation called the Novel Food Regulation, you cannot import any food that hadn't entered or been marketed in the European Union before a certain year, which is quite far back, like I think it's, you know, the 90s or the 80s. Um, but don't quote me on that, but it's, you know, it goes far back. So imagine you're, a, you know, a farmer in the Amazon and you discover a berry that, you know, is, uh, uh, is, is, is then proven to be a perfect uh, fighter for obesity or influenza or what have you. Well, you just cannot commercialize it in the EU because there's a regulation that says, was it being traded before in the EU, before this year? No, we just found it. Well, you can't sell it here. And, you know, there, there are a bunch of other things which I won't go into, like the size of food, um, you know, the color of food, which regulate which foods can enter countries. And that's another way in which, you know, agriculture in these other countries is impeded, is impaired. And, and so, uh, yes, the public policy uh, has a big role to play. And the market is uh, very global, um, so it's very concentrated vertically and horizontally. And that means that, um, of course, you know, a lot of these big companies which now hold what? One, there, I think there's one company that holds, you know, a thir two thirds of the seed market, uh, two thirds of the patented, um, um, you know, uh, herbicide, two thirds of, the, the numbers are just stunning because in, in market concentration terms, when a market, a, a, a dominant player holds more than 20% is considered uh, a trust, is considered, you know, um, a high concentration. And here we're talking about concentration levels of, you know, 70, 80% of the market in the hands of, you know, one, two large uh, global producers. So a lot of these Producers, of course, um, are very influential. You know, people talk about lobbies, food food lobbies or agricultural lobbies all over the world. And and they do influence policy. So, um, you know, um, some people say they write their own policies at this point. They just uh, uh, are very closely connected with, uh, you know, legislators. And, and, and that's how... The system keeps, you know, keeps floating in in the way it's configured. So to change it, you know, uh, that there needs to be consciousness about, uh, you know, the larger um, implications of what's going on here, and there needs to be a connection made between agricultural policy and food policy. Now, the good news here is that uh, agriculture, you know, even the big players are now aware that A, there's a, consumers have become more conscious about the food choices, and that comes out very, uh, very vividly in consumer service, uh, retail consumer service, where, you know, shift, there's been a, a, a very detectable shift in the way uh, people um, seem to decide about the dietary choices. This is in part generational because, uh, you know, millennials and Gen Z have a complete different mindset about what they eat and what they should eat. But it's also, you know, related to the fact that there have been a bunch of reports, for example, about meat consumption and the impact on health and other aspects of, uh, you know, food safety um, that have created public scares globally. And people have become much more attentive to what they eat. Uh, and where it comes from and how it's produced. And that's, you know, um, producers have become aware of that because people are moving, you know, with their, with their shopping carts and, uh, and that feels, it hurts. It hurts uh, profits. And so they're 
now willing to move and they've themselves invested in more sustainable ways of production, you know, put a food in there. They just, you know, put a, a, a chip on the, on the, on the roulette table, just one, just to see what happens. Uh, but the other big reasons why, you know, this big uh, oligopolism moving is climate change. Climate change is actually impairing or jeopardizing the ability of, you know, big industrial uh, farms that monocrop, that use a lot of fertilizers is, is uh, and use a lot of water where water shouldn't be used or should be used much more parsimoniously for more indigenous types of, you know, crops and uh, animals. They become aware that this is, you know, there's this game is going to end pretty soon um, because soil is uh, globally degraded or very degraded. Water is, you know, now being pumped out at rhythms that are completely incompatible with uh, water sustainability concepts. Uh, I mean, I can go into the details of what's going on, you know, from uh, from uh, China to Saudi Arabia to uh, the United States um, to parts of Africa, but I think it's you know it's very well known that we are a lot of these countries have now pumped out uh, water from fossil aquifers. These are unreplaceable aquifers, and you know we the the number of of wells and pumps that are being installed daily is just mind boggling. And the water is just you know you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper to bring it out. And some areas of India, you know, some states, half of all electricity is used to pump water out because there just isn't water at shorter uh, or closer locations, you know, under the crust. So you have to go a thousand feet down. So um, climate change is a big game changer for this, the food system and, and those who are involved into production. And, and so they have become... A little bit more responsive. I mean, of course, they're playing end game, like you know, the oil industry saying, "Let's see how much more we can profit of this before we jump into a new way of producing." Um, but but they're scared, and so um, I think it's a good moment to start thinking and, and writing down this uh, these new policies and see how they play out in the you know in the public domain. There's definitely support from public opinion globally. Yes, you make you, you make a great case for all of those in the book. And so we've talked now about some of the supply side um, issues and policy mechanisms. You, you just started talking about some of the demand side, uh, also talking about kind of the, the private companies and how they're starting to see the wind shift and uh, becoming big players in transitioning for this kind of great food transformation. Can we dive into with the the time we have left? Can you talk a little about like one or two of the policy mechanisms levers that y'all discuss with regard to the food waste section, and then also with regard to the conserving or sustainable land use section? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think you know the I I just wanted to to make sure that you know people listening in understand that you know if we don't change a lot of people talk about. And we, we discussed at the beginning that there's a, almost a dichotomy. We, we need to work on the energy transition first because it's important. But, you know, work, um, research and science has just shown that if we left food systems as they were just and we stop fossil fuel tomorrow, which, of course, is impossible tomorrow, all fossil fuel uh, is just waved out. Well, the food system as it is now, given agriculture trends, population trends, and dietary shifts, would bring us three times over our 1.5 Celsius uh, permitted increase in global warming that, that that would lead to a complete imbalancing of the air system. So, so food systems are very important. Um, a low-hanging fruit uh, that you mentioned is is food waste. So, food waste uh, is kind of um, uh, a, a quite easy area for policy to make a tremendous difference, um, but but the way uh, one goes about that it's it, it varies depending on you know where um, where the food waste or food loss occurs. So in in lower income countries, 
food waste or food loss mainly happens in the supply chain, so at the production level. And that means that, uh, you know, either food rots on the fields or when um, food is produced, it's stored, but it's not stored well and being perishable, it just goes bad. There are enough, you know, cooling, storage facilities because that's expensive. Um, or transportation is not good enough because the virus infrastructure is not good enough. And so uh, the time it takes, you know, to bring some fruit from, you know, for example, the, the Amazons in Peru to the coast where it gets shipped, for example, to, you know, the North America is quite long. It takes about a couple of days drive. I don't know if you've ever traveled those regions there, you know, the infrastructure is still very uh, primordial. And if you if you make it to the coast, then uh, with your with your cargo uh, on a truck, then uh, you know some of those will probably have not you know made it. Uh, some of those products, um, and so uh, you know there really the intervention of public policy is to <clears throat> uh, first of all invest in weather and satellite imagery to facilitate. <clears throat> the you know the more nimbleness of farming practices that allows for example crops to be harvested you know before a storm or before uh you know a weather event that might destroy part of that crop and make make it to be lost uh also invest in cooling systems and cooling storage facilities so that people can you know uh cooperatively or as a community store you know in, a, in common storage systems um, and also, of course, transportation uh, investments, which uh, you know are are good for many other reasons, not just uh, commerce, but of course they're very important to kind of vitalize uh, areas uh, of land that are you know rural, but there you know can be the engine of production of some particular food. So um, that's for for those um, you know for those regions and those those types of countries for advanced economies. Uh, there's much more efficiency in production, so there isn't much loss in production, but there's uh, uh, most of the loss occurs at the consumer level, and some of it occurs at the retail level in supermarkets and grocery stores. And so, <clears throat> you know, for consumers, uh, there's a lot of ways that one can go about, and some of this is, you know, it could be education campaigns, but a lot of it uh, and, you know, really instilling a no-waste culture in, in from kids, you know, to, to people at different ages. But also has to do with the way, you know, the uh, restaurant um, and uh, catering uh, is regulated. So, uh, you know, you can prohibit, for example, the good food that is not gone bad to, to go to waste. You have to, you can compel, you know, restaurants and bars to, donate that food, you know, create special food banks, organize or have them get organized into uh, transportation to food banks and so forth, loosen regulation that impede, you know, the donation of food to some of these food banks. And then there's a lot of work that is happening now, which is in part, you know, innovative, which is that of uh, doing this so-called dynamic pricing in supermarkets and, and that again, you know, the, there's a role for policy in making it uh, legit and also supporting it through, you know, research and investment and innovation, which is basically linking, um, setting different prices for products that uh, uh, have different expiration dates. So if you go buy a sandwich uh, and you got two sandwiches in front of you, one expiring, you know, on June 26 and one expiring on June 28th, I think both of you, you and I would probably go for the June 28th, like, you know, it looks fresher because it has a, a later expiration date. Um, if it's priced the same, you know, the consumer will go for the one with the later expiration date. But but if it's priced uh, more than the one that has a, you know, a closer expiration date, we probably make a you know, wise decision. This is still perfectly edible food. I mean, it hasn't expired. It's two days from expiration. How about the cheaper one? And, and, you know, these are ideas that can, um, you know, that can really help, uh, you know, change the system uh, and, and, and save enormous amount of food, um, which, you know, basically uh, we're, we're trashing the planet for food that we don't eat. If we go into conservation 
and 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 managing you know sustainable sustainably lands and seas i mean there's a a, a tremendous amount of uh, public policy responsibility in the way land and seas are used and it's kind of not uh, evident i mean we're not talking about you know national parks although a lot of uh, a lot of land is saved, for example, in the U.S. through, uh, you know, the, the national park uh, system. But this has to do really with, with the way, you know, land is, uh, is you know, regulated and administered in countries. And the same uh, relates to seas. So um, there, um, one can impose a number of, uh, you know, either, you know, incentives through tax incentives or subsidies, cross compliance to conservation that fosters a conservation mentality. Uh, when, for example, the farm bill, um, you know, some of the iterations of the farm bill, you know, um, for example, uh, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s became, you know, the, the yield became the, the, the most important thing quickly. And so, it, the, the the mantra was you know get big or get out and and it was really a mentality of uh, farming uh, every single inch of the land so you wouldn't leave anything to you know a flower or to a cover crop or to anything like uh, you know uh, hedges and we know that those areas are also part of conservation they're essential for pollinators and other you know ecosystems. Uh, that are important for food, uh, but we also need uh, policies, to, you know, for big, uh, big protection of contiguous areas, both at land and at sea, and that has to go through a number of initiatives that basically uh, give a price for farmers to convert the lands into rewilded areas. So, the idea that we have in the book, there's a bunch of, you know fiscal financial incentives, but you, um, and this is not a new idea, is to create carbon funds for, uh, you know, basically financially rewarding uh, people that, that actively uh, keep their land uncultivated, um, you know, penalize, uh, penalize or prohibit uh, farmers from, you know, draining uh, key ecosystems like, you know, peatlands or destroying mangroves for, shrimp production and so forth. So you you really have to have in mind conservation when you're doing agricultural policy because you, as we said, there is like a tension between the two things. For for fisheries and ocean conservation, there are, you know, various policies. Some have to do with just, as we said, delineating some no-catch, you know, uh, no-mining areas, the so-called marine protected areas, and those have to be 30% of the ocean. So each country has to do their share. Which countries have, you know, their um, uh, their their coastal area is under their jurisdiction, and then there's the open seas and their you know, treaties that regulate the open seas. But um, this can be, of course, uh, internationally coordinated. But there's also a lot of things that wh- why is fish depleted so fast? What what makes it possible? Well, basically, um, there's one one culprit here, and that's you know marine diesel. A, most commercial fishing would not be able to go so far out at sea to chase with sonars and military equipment fishes in all parts of the oceans um, for a profit if you know the uh, the fuel was wasn't so cheap and if they didn't receive subsidies also from government so redressing the subsidies to um, sustainable forms of you know fishery which could be shallow tra- trawlers or no trawlers, regenerative ocean farming, which, you know, doesn't actually involve fishes, but just, you know, um, scallops, clams, and seaweeds. These are um, light uh, and high effective ways to completely transform these sectors in a way that it also allows the delivery of conservation objectives, which, as we know, are you know, one of the three pillars of the carbon sinks of how we, we're going to save the planet, okay? So there's mitigation, there's carbon sinks, and then, of course, there's the social population growth aspect. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you some flavor about this too, but the, the, the book does go into details, for example, how some countries 
I'm, I make the example of Bhutan or Costa Rica go about their conservation policies? How can they enmesh conservation into a successful economy and a successful agricultural production? They do, and we can follow their example, so we can tailor other examples to our needs. But there is a big role for public policy and uh, including, you know, uh, being able to monitor conservation uh, through satellite imageries to even facial recognition of fauna and and all that can be shaped by the right policies. And we discuss those policies in detail uh, in the book. Yeah, and I, we appreciate just the the breadth and kind of overview of the policies and mechanisms available. And And again, to reiterate what you just mentioned, the book goes into more options as well as more details within those options. And some of those options come with success stories and, and kind of notions of where they've been used and how they've been used uh, well. And so as we're coming to a close, I just want to say thank you for, for joining us. And, and we took a big chunk of your time. And I know this book is brand new off the press. So how are you seeing it being utilized and kind of what are you working on now that the book is is out there? Well, uh, I have a number of outlets and uh, I'm presenting it uh, in various international fora, um, including the Science Day at the UN uh, Food Systems Summit, which is coming up uh, this July and then in the fall for the Leader Summit. Um, but I really would like to be, uh, you know, distributed in academia and becoming like, you know, a vademecum for both policymakers, but also people interested in the sec in the sector, you know, people that work in the sector to get a frame uh, around, you know, the way we should think about these issues and how we can, you know, work synergistically uh, across a number of disciplines to fix the problem. This is. I see it as the biggest biggest problem and challenge we have. Fossil fuels is very important. It's key, but you know, like Johan Rockström says, it's the easy part. What's complex is the carbon sinks and food, and we really need to have all hands on deck to fix the problem. So I'm gonna go out there and make a lot of noise with the book in my hand. Well, the fact that I have it in my hand, I I know for certain I'm gonna be adopting some of these chapters into the food and ag policy courses I teach at the graduate level. So I really appreciate you and your colleagues taking all the time and energy that goes into creating an edited volume, uh, because I think it does bring a lot of discussion to the table and, and presents some information that, like you mentioned, was a, a little bit sketchier. Thank you so much, Chris. It was great. It was great being with you today. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye.